0: Hey folks, thank you for joining us. And go ahead and don't be shy. Jump in the chat. Send us your questions. But before we do the whole rigmarole, um, Terry is already an alum of the podcast. So uh, for folks, if you're not familiar with the podcast, we did uh, we recorded an episode. I think it was last year for like a year ago. Yeah, yeah for the, the CE for CES. But we did a throwback Thursday it was. Like, what the crazy kids do nowadays online. But we have, that episode is out there where we talk to Terry in detail about his background and stuff. But, by, but Diana, this is the yes. first time that you've joined us. But we always start off the same way with, um, just tell us about yourself. How did you join NASA? What brought you to Silicon Valley?
1: Yeah, so I never thought I would work at NASA. It was not a dream as a child. Actually Mm -hmm. NASA showed up on my radar back in 1997. I was a high schooler, young high schooler at the time, and NASA had just sent the Pathfinder mission to Mars, and so we had Sojourner Rover driving around Mars. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fascinating, not really because of the science like Jim and Greg last time, but Mm. more the problem that they had to solve to get there. NASA hadn't been to Mars successfully in 20 years. And since then, we've been back there eight times. But for me, I thought, wow, this is a really hard challenge that I want to know how to solve. I want to be part of that was problem that in like
0: like in high school or college? That was in that like- was in
1: high school. Oh
0: wow. Yeah, okay. That was
1: early high yeah. school. And so I didn't really know quite how to get in that world. It wasn't necessarily the rover problem that I wanted to solve, but I wanted to do something really difficult yeah. and overcome that. So found myself into engineering in college and then wound up going into aeronautical and aerospace engineering in college and was always looking for part of the field that was changing, that was evolving, mm-hmm. that was growing. So many things were, well, we'd figured it out. and. It was just a matter of optimizing and getting it just a little bit better. But I wanted something that was rapidly changing. And with computers and control systems, that seemed like the place to be.
0: Was so, it just like an internship or something that you ended up jumping I, in or were you working in the field? And... I
1: would. I found a professor that I really liked working with. And so was working that uh, involved an internship with JPL at, okay. down at JPL and Our working with JPL. Yeah, exactly. And then afterwards I was just looking at places that did the kind of algorithms and math and engineering that I had learned to do in grad school and found my way here. Oh, nice. Met people at a conference and came, gave a presentation and received an offer. Awesome. So,
0: we'll go a little bit more into some yeah. of the stuff that you're working on, and stuff that Terry's working on, and of course, we'll get questions from the chat. But folks, if you are just joining us, you are watching the second-ever episode of the NASA and Silicon Valley Live. This is a conversational show on Twitch TV, uh, with various researchers, scientists, engineers, and all-around cool people at NASA, <laughs> and specifically here at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley. So, um, as I mentioned at our premiere episode, we're trying something new here. Um, We're basically taking the audio podcast and doing it live on Twitch. And so last time we had a lot of fun talking about the moon, and today we're talking about self-driving robots, planes, and automobiles. Mm -hmm. So uh, first and foremost, a shout out to the live audience on the chat. Uh, We're going to kick things off by just talking with our guests. uh, And we're going to try to answer as many questions as possible from the chat. Um, And based off of last time, we're going to try some rapid fire questions at the very end. So don't be shy. Send in as many questions as you can. Or just feel free to just send emotes and spam that at us nonstop in the chat because we're going to be looking at it. So, um, I'm your host, Matthew Buffington, and this time, my host, Abby Tabor. Uh, She's going to be looking and taking the questions from the chat, so good luck with that, Abby. Oh, yes, thank you
2: very much. (laughs) I look forward to the challenge. And first of all, we already have some action, so let me say hello to Cafe Medfica. I'm going to butcher your handle, sorry about that. Hello from Sweden. And, Rijedi, hello there to you, too. And now, let me introduce our guests. So, right here next to me, I have Terry Fong. Chief Roboticist at NASA Ames, and the lead of the Intelligent Robotics Group here, right? Yep. Excellent. We got to hear what all of that means in a minute. And right down there, Diana Acosta, Aerospace mm-hmm. Engineer with the Intelligent Systems Division here mm-hmm. at Ames, right? right? And you're also working on innovation, I believe, mm-hmm. the NASA Innovation Collaborative Initiative. Mm-hmm. That sounds intriguing. So you'll tell us more about that later? Absolutely. All right. Great. Welcome.
0: And so um, before we get into the good stuff and talking about robots and self-driving cars, I want to sort through some housekeeping. Um, We're going to do this podcast live and on Twitch TV uh, slash NASA for the next couple weeks. Um, We'll be back next Friday at 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Pacific time. And we have a special treat for that episode where we're doing a little bit of a let's play. So I'm sure the Twitch... Uh, audience is a little mm-hmm. bit familiar with some. There's a lot of space video games out there, so um, get ready for that for next week. But for this week, um, oh, just to let you know, we really want your feedback. We're figuring this all out, um, trying. You know, any feedback, advice, stuff that you want to tell us, just let us know. Um, if you cannot catch us live, that's no big deal. You can catch us on YouTube.com/slash NASA Ames afterwards, or on podcast services throughout the solar system and beyond. Um, but right now. The plan is to have those versions up. I think on Monday is we're going to have those um, the on-demand versions up. But um, now that we've we've gotten to know like Diana and Terry a little bit, um, we can just jump right into the conversation. So whenever we're talking about self-driving cars and like in NASA speak, we keep referring to it as autonomy. I purposely did not put autonomy in the title of the show because I was like, I don't know what that means to most people, so um, I replaced it with self-driving. But is that really fair or accurate? Let's talk a little bit, like, what is autonomy? So, Terry.
3: Yeah, well, autonomy means you can do things by yourself. I mean, as simple as that. I mean, my cat's autonomous, my kids are (laughs) autonomous, probably more autonomous than I want. Uh, Oftentimes, um, you know, uh, robots can be autonomous, you know, and and that really just means that they're able to to go off and do things uh, and achieve, you know, goals or objectives uh, that, you know, they're carrying out by themselves. And uh, whether it's self-driving or autonomous, you know, at the end, frankly, I don't care. It just means that, hey, they're off independent. I don't have to be hands-on. I'm not joysticking them. I just say, hey, go do something, and then hopefully they'll
0: get something done. Yeah, a lot of That's people clear. make references of like joysticking it. So this is like, this is literally you're like a video game. You're dri- you're driving the rover. You're driving the machine or operating it. That's the idea. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, I mean,
0: people look at NASA and they think, oh my God, you've got the most
3: advanced robots out there. But you know, sometimes we're just joysticking it, and that literally means we've got hands on joysticks, or if we use the technical terms, hand controllers, um, nice. and we control how robots move, whether they're arms, you know, robot arms, or they're free flying uh, systems or or rovers. But uh, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do these days here, at least in terms of research and development, is to go beyond that. We want the mm-hmm. robots to be, you know, more independent. I mean, I don't want to joystick my kids and say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> go left, go right, stop, move forward, come back." Mm-hmm. You know, I just like yeah. just, you know, hey, go mow the lawn or go to the store and get something for me. And I want robots to do the same thing.
2: Hmm. I have a question here that might be relevant radiateur, maybe, and saying, are you going to talk about deep learning, such as neuronal networks or genetic algorithms? and what, what kinds of things are controlling these robots that can act independently?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there are lots of different things that you can use to make these robots um, or systems in general more independent. Um, mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of research going on today involving machine learning, deep learning, um, AI, all these different words you hear out there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's really just trying to make the system function more intelligently or, you know, and in a way that is that seems more intelligent. That is, you want it to be more, you know, capable, more competent. You want it to do something um, in a way that seems to make sense. You know, things. I look at like like a, like a, like a um, lots of robot vacuum cleaners out there. Yeah, you yeah know? And you like, see, the and like the Roombas. Like the Roombas. You see, and, and I mean, Roombas can do a great job, but you look at them and you have no idea what they're doing because they're kind of wandering around. They're bumping into stuff. It's not really clear, you know, how they're cleaning. And so I look at mm-hmm. them and I'm like, is that intelligent? Well, if I watch it, it certainly doesn't look intelligent, but you know, it can still do a good job. Gets the job done. It gets the, the job, job done. <laughs> right, but there yeah. are other systems out there. You know, you can see, and they do these kind of like these lawnmower patterns, and it's very obvious what they're doing. And you think, hey, that looks more, you know, intelligent because it's it's doing this in a very, you know, sort of careful way, and you know, a uh, a way that's very efficient. Um, but I mm-hmm. look at a Roomba, and it's kind of doing this kind of stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I'm
0: not quite sure. You know, <laughs> how smart is that? Huh. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, how, how, how does that match into some of the work that you're doing, Diana? Because I know you and Terry work quite a bit, but you know, as a fancy aerospace engineer, <laughs> how, how does one go from aerospace engineer to working on autonomous systems and I'm guessing the aviation picture? Yeah. How does that work?
1: So actually, when I was studying aerospace engineering, I focused on machine learning in terms okay. of being able to not collect an abundance of data, but be able to... Uh, Take the data that you're receiving at the time from all the sensors that are on the aircraft or spacecraft or airship and be able to utilize that in a smart way, learn from it, and then control that vehicle in a way that will be successful to achieve the goals. It's Mm -hmm. quite a bit different than the big data that is going on within industry, around us, especially in Silicon Valley, where they have a lot of data that they're collecting and they're using that to be able to, in general, assist the humans and provide information to the humans or make sound business decisions. In our cases, whether it's a robot or a spacecraft or an aircraft, we're looking at taking that data and being able to let the robot or the aircraft or the spacecraft make the decision itself and act on that decision so i think that's Mm -hmm. the differentiator between what we see outside the gate and what we're doing on the inside Hmm. i'm sure that the chat's blowing up yeah it it (laughs) is really (laughs) i'm already
2: way behind in questions so uh, (laughs) well well valask is saying i can get behind self-driving cars but self-driving planes it, is it the same idea of autonomy? Is it a lesser degree of independence for a plane than a car, or, or you know, does it not work that way? You know, airplanes
1: have been self-flying for decades. Okay, yeah, we have been flying with autopilots uh, and flight management systems, and you know, the pilot can get in, make sure their company programmed the route correctly, and go. Now, they are fully yeah. responsible as a pilot mm-hmm. when you're going on trip. They're fully responsible for the safety of that aircraft and make, and monitoring all the various systems. It's incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. But aircraft, it, they have a nice safety buffer between them and other aircraft. It's okay. pretty predictable. We understand the web, the impacts of weather and other contingencies. We know how to handle that. So in a way, I see aircraft is being on the forefront of that mm-hmm. self-driving or self-flying area, and it's a lot further ahead of the game. The car is so much more challenging with all the dynamics, you know, cars and kids and yeah. pedestrians and weather and right. sun, and right, oh, right, it's right. very complicated. And I have a question about
2: weather. Yeah. What sort of considerations has, have weather conditions had on designs of self-driving vehicles? Do you know how how that's
3: considered?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll ask Terry to take that one. (laughs) Well,
3: you know, so we we do a lot of work these days in in trying to make robots uh, function, you know, more robustly across all kinds of conditions, whether it's weather or, you know, frankly, traffic patterns or congestion, all kinds of different things. I mean, in terms of uh, cars, um, and we've been working with with some companies in Silicon Valley that work on self-driving cars, Mm -hmm. a lot of the challenges have to do with the fact that they all rely on sensor data. You know, cameras, radars, laser systems to understand what's around them. And if you have weather, um, which, you know, fortunately, we don't have a whole lot of here in Silicon Valley, um, yeah. then have you have, the have problems. the best weather. Well, the we, best. <laughs> we, we the best weather. You know, we, we don't get rain <laughs> and no? fog and yeah, snow yeah. and sleet. Those are the kinds of things which make all those sensors just stop functioning. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, any of us are trying to drive on the roads by saying, hey, okay, where am I going to go next? And, you know, the answer is it's really hard if you can't yeah. see. And yeah. same thing is true about self-driving cars and robots.
2: Okay, right. So along these lines, but specifically about GPS, um, Cafe Medfica is asking, is NASA working with big car makers to make GPS better for self-driving cars? Is you know, that I, important I, part?
3: I don't know if, if uh, anyone across NASA is doing that. I mean, GPS is used a lot in, um, not just in terms of like cars, but a lot of terrestrial robots, agricultural robots, mm-hmm. as, you know, drones. Mm-hmm. They all rely on GPS yeah. for understanding where they are in the world. But uh, the reality is for things like, like automobiles, it's not sufficient just to rely on GPS. Yeah. I mean, you need to worry about, for example, am I exactly right next to the, the car? And you're not going to be able to tell that from GPS. Right. It's so a you, finer scale. Finer yeah, scale. Yeah. So you're going to need other sensors. Um, you know, we rely on all kinds of, of things to give us very precise position information, especially you know how close to, to objects that mm-hmm. we might want to stay away from. And uh, so that's far beyond GPS.
0: Yeah. So, I'm going to jump on in, because if you are just joining us now, you're watching NASA and Silicon Valley Live, a new conversational show that we are trying out on twitch.tv slash NASA, and we are chatting with Terry and with Diana about self-driving robots, planes, and automobiles. So, we're going to keep taking as many questions as we possibly can, but I got to jump in, because there was one thing where, um, when we did the podcast, Terry and I were talking, and you were talking about some of the early days of autonomy, and you are talking about like 3D mapping, and, and how even some of your early work Work with VR um, helped kind of play into some of that. So um, maybe talk a little bit about some of those early days. And I think now, now like self-driving cars and VR are very much buzzwords. Anybody who's into gaming, like. Like he's hearing all about that. So talk about some of those early days and I'm pretty sure Bill over in the back has some cool images that we're gonna pop on mm-hmm. up. but yeah,
3: so I mean, um, you know, a lot of people think that that VR is something that just happened a couple of years ago, but um, this is actually the third or fourth wave. Um, actually, the picture that's up here was from about 1990 or so. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research and development here at NASA Ames in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, looking at different VR headsets and you look at this and it looks kind of clunky and it's got, but at the same time, it's a lot of the same kinds of things that you see today. It's just that today they're, you know, a hundred times cheaper, they're higher resolution, but some of the basic, you know, fundamentals of how to, to put people in these virtual worlds was done here at Ames. Um, and we used that, you know, a <laughs> long awesome. time ago because we were <laughs> interested in of transporting scientists to other worlds. The idea that you could remotely explore Mars by using a head mounted display, maybe you have some sort of data glove on, maybe you're trying to reach out and manipulate um, a virtual rock. These are the kinds of things that we were really interested in you know even back 30 years ago at the you know the, the previous wave, or maybe it was like two or three waves ago of VR. Um, mm-hmm. But for us at NASA, I mean it really is all about you know how can you better touch the data And mm-hmm. immersive 3D uh, rendering, 3D user interfaces, head mounted displays, that's all part of that. Um, this is actually, uh, the this, this screenshot here is from uh, a robot control interface that we, we developed here back around 1992. It was called uh, VEVI. I think it was the Virtual Environment Vehicle Interface. It wasn't a particularly good acronym. Uh, but the idea here is that we could use this to remotely operate robots uh, by way of a VR interface. So we control the robot in VR, and that then sends commands to the actual robot, which might have been, you know, you know, thousands of miles away, or even you know, other planets. And the idea here is that we interact with the data, and that allows us to better understand what's going on with the robot, and then the robot can go off and do its own work.
2: Nice, Abby. Awesome. How's the chat going? Oh my gosh! All right, well, <laughs> <we're> blowing up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our friend Cafe Medvika, dope show. Thank you very much, and. Uh Diana, how will from Jay Stubbles, how will automated aircraft handle perilous situations such as Bird Strike? Will it look for a safe landing solution like Sullenberger's Hudson River Landing, like in the movie Sully?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Actually, one of our colleagues, uh, David Smith, he's actually retiring today, so shout out to David. And he developed an emergency landing planner with some of our colleagues. And what it does is that flight management system where the company can put in the route and the aircraft can follow from one point to another to another, the emergency landing planner helps to look at you know, where the aircraft is given the circumstance whether it's a bird strike an engine out a fire whatever the emergency might be and take into account all of the airports within the area and what emergency services they have and any weather that's between the aircraft and those landing points and then it develops a route that can also take into consideration the ability of the aircraft if you lose an engine you don't want to turn in certain ways you want to turn one way or the other. If you lose part of your tail, you certainly don't want to be doing certain maneuvers. So it can take into the maneuverability, take into account that maneuverability of the aircraft and provide routes and suggested landing points for the pilots and give even explanations Mm -hmm. as to why this airport, why not that one? I can see that one, that one's over there. And so it helps drill down. So David Smith, along with colleagues in Intelligence Systems Division and the Human Systems Interaction or Integration Division have worked that out. And yeah, absolutely. We're making progress here at Ames. Awesome. Yeah. Cool to hear about.
2: So, a couple more comments. Noxum96 likes how I'm smiling at my laptop all the time because this chat is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for noticing. Larabug says, Thank you so much for doing the stream. And here's an interesting one. Young Reefer asks If these self driving things are using AI, can they take on solutions they've created themselves?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, and I hope the answer is yes, um, <laughs> because you know I, I don't believe that that anyone I mean certainly not me or or people necessarily you know here at NASA have all the answers. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what we really would like are systems that can be adaptive to the world. Um, it's really difficult okay. to sort of like program a system for every single thing that could possibly happen. In fact, oh. you know we don't train ourselves to do that. When you teach someone to drive a car, it's not like well here are the hundred things that you're going to ever encounter and only these hundred. Instead, you try to teach them, you know, how do you deal with different things like, oh, hey, you know, a tree fell down the road Mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, for some reason, there's a cow in the middle of the street. Um, at least not, maybe not around Mountain View, but you know, some places that could uh, that, that could happen. <laughs> yeah. And so, what we want are systems that can really learn, um, or at least adapt to changing circumstances. and it's not just stuff that we've pre-programmed.
2: Yeah, it's got to be, especially if that's space exploration, right? We don't know what we're going to find. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. So the challenge for us as developers, as humans, is to really blow out that space of what could be the possibilities, so that the computer can really fill in its knowledge mm-hmm. and then act on that knowledge.
0: Isn't that actually different from the humans? It's like, like yeah. what you actually physically see, like your brain fills in mm-hmm. a lot of gaps because, I mean, that's like how optical illusions and stuff work. I'd imagine yeah. is, like, robots have to stay, or the, the software has to take shortcuts as well to be more efficient, I'm guessing?
3: Or? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that humans make a lot of guesses. And some of those mm-hmm. guesses are hopefully educated, you know, I mean, we, <laughs> yeah, we ideally. don't let, we in general, we don't let people drive until they've like, you know, learned how to drive and passed the test um, and did a, you know, a road test and that kind of things. And, and maybe at some point in time, we're gonna have something similar for, for say, self-driving cars or, or robots as well. Because mm-hmm. one of the, I guess, real problems we have is that when you guess, you know, you know, usually you'll guess right. At least humans, we like to believe that we can guess right. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Mm-hmm. There are times when we just, you know, guess wrong or we have incomplete information and we make a mm-hmm. mistake. Um, and those are things you know that I, I do worry about as well for any sort of you know autonomous vehicle or robot that we create. Whether or not are they going to make the wrong assumption? Are they going to leap to the wrong conclusion? But right.
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll
3: see. Do you have more, anyway, Abby? Right, right.
2: Well, yeah, I hesitated because this was a long handle that I had trouble pronouncing. So Tigerion uh, was was asking. Sorry, wait. I've mixed up a couple of people. Post VT, wanted to know what are your thoughts on AI and self-learning tech. Do you think this could cause problems in the future? If so, why? So,
0: yeah, think you, just touched I, I, you on know, it's always the Skynet. It's references. always a, yeah,
3: sure, yeah. Skynet and, and whatever else is going to come take over the world. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that we worry a lot about at, at NASA um, because we tend to build systems um, that are very expensive. Then they go to space or mm-hmm. their flight mm-hmm. systems. Is how do you really sort of test and make sure that they will work as predicted? Um, You know, the terms that we typically use are things like, you know, uh, verification, validation, certification, all those Asian kind of things. (laughs) But that really means, you know, can you make sure they're going to work as planned? Mm -hmm. And as soon as you let something learn and adapt, the question is, how do you test that? Um, It's a really difficult thing, and I'm I'm not sure we really have the answers. I don't know, maybe Diana has some, some great thoughts about that or...
1: Um, No, we certainly don't have the answers there. When we are not aiming for the highest goal, we can certainly let the systems learn, let them make decisions, but then give them that boundary. Like you might a child putting the child in the play yard and the play yard is fenced go off, have fun. Mm-hmm. I know you're not getting past that fence. <laughs> yeah. And so we can do that with our robots and with our systems that we equip with AI. Yeah. But once we recognize that we want the robots to achieve more, we want them to accomplish more and you know serve us better for our NASA missions, we have to take down that fence and we have to trust them. It's how do you establish that trust yeah. If you are putting millions of dollars into that mission, yeah, right. or you are the scientist who has waited your whole life to get the data from that mission. Of course. So verification and validation, is certainly important.
2: Cool. Now, I do want to get to Tiger and Dono's question because I faked okay. you out there, and it's a great <laughs> question. Lots of science produces lots of data, more than can be retained. For example, CERN's Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. How can you teach then self controlling vehicles what to send back for review and what to just ignore?
3: That is a really great question. Mm-hmm. I think um, one thing that people may not be aware of is that every single mission NASA sends into space is capable of acquiring even more data than we've ever had before. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we still have a same sort of like narrow communication pipe to send things back to Earth, you know, right. which means that you know, oftentimes we have this real problem of how do you, you know, sort through all the data that's collected and figure out what to prioritize, what to send back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's true that um, it's a, a really challenging question. And I think one way to kind of address that is to to build systems that can do more processing on board and try to do some interpretation Mm -hmm. of that. I mean, that's the kind of information we'd like to to have, um, you know, used on Mars, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have a lot of interest of of being able to track these things called dust devils, Mm -hmm. Um, these kind of swirling little cyclones, Mm -hmm. because they have a very practical use for us uh, with our solar-powered rovers, at least, uh, you know, Spirit and Opportunity. We'd like to get them in a place where the dust can come by and sort of clean, clean off the solar, off. clean off the solar panels, yeah. so we have better well, not too you know, much. energy. <laughs> not too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you a know, bit a, bit a bit gentle bit blow dry kind mm-hmm. of thing, mm-hmm. you know. But in order to do that, um, we don't want to try to loop all the data back to Earth and make decisions because it takes too long. And by that time, you know, the dust devil will have passed. And the mm-hmm. idea is to try to track it on board. So that means you have to do more processing of the data on board the spacecraft or on board the robot.
0: And I think that's where we're headed. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was going to say, that was one of the things we talked about like like in, in the podcast before. But this is not just like Mars. I mean, there's the speed of light. There's like yeah. information can only travel back and forth so so much. And even when you're out by Saturn and like further out, there's always going to be that delay. So you need autonomous systems or else the delay is just going to be so extreme.
1: Yeah. So. And then I was going to add, we were talking about one system trying to communicate with Earth. Now, yeah. if you add multiple spacecraft and you need those spacecraft to communicate with each other to be able to yeah. acquire the data in the right sequence at the right time and be able to fill in for anything that goes wrong, prioritizing that data exchange, that knowledge generation across multiple spacecraft is the problem we're working on.
2: Yeah. Awesome. I had a question. We've talked a lot about the self-driving cars. OK, Raynar the Conqueror wants to know, I would really like to know what is NASA doing with autonomous vehicles other than the fact that it would be required in a rover for a pilot-based system? Basically, you guys are probably looking forward to sending people to Mars. So how big of a part of your work is that, a human-controlled Mars rover Versus what else you're working on?
3: So a lot of what we're doing right now is is trying to, to make uh, planetary robots uh, more capable because we want to send them places that are more difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to send a robot into a lava tube, for example, you know, not so easy to have continuous communication when you're down underneath the surface. Okay, that's like, like know, a cave. I like a cave surf- kind of okay. robot. Um, uh. Um, If you want to send robots that are far away, you know, as Dino was saying, if you go out, you know, even just, I mean, Mars, for example, is is 20, 40 minutes uh, delay. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go beyond Mars, it's even worse. And so you can't just have humans in sort of like real-time control kind of situations. And so the key is for us to create systems that can function by themselves. Um, You know, maybe they're not going to make all decisions by themselves. Maybe they'll make decisions in some way that's, um, you know, achieving a particular purpose, like driving from point A to point B is a good example mm-hmm. of that. Um, rather than just trying to say, oh, go, go discover stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> we might say, hey, at least go from this point to this point, and then we'll make decisions about the science we're trying to, to, to actually carry out. Um, but all that means that we, we need the systems to be more reliable, uh, more autonomous, uh, more able to make their own decisions. And I that, that's a lot that what we're trying to do here.
1: Yeah. And so if you think about human exploration, you can also make a parallel back to your home. When you go to work every day or you go to school, when you leave your home, you can turn the thermostat on and trust that you'll come home to a warm, comfy place. Mm -hmm. Or if you wanna have stew, you might turn on the crock pot and trust that all (laughs) things will go well. And if you want clean clothes, (laughs) you can go to bed, turning on the washer and throw it in the dryer when you wake up. Um, There's other things like your oven not want to leave on (laughs) while you run to the grocery store to get that extra thing and when we are going to be sending humans to the moon or mars we will want to send their habitat first and there's many different mission operations but one of the main concepts is have a precursor mission where we are sending the habitat ahead, maybe assembling the habitat ahead, and getting it running and operating autonomously before we send the humans there. Alleviate risk, and I know this this pod or this um, broadcast is yeah. geared towards robots and airplanes and automobiles, uh-huh. but think about your habitat, your house. Yeah, really. Yeah. It is. It is then self taking care of itself. Uh, you had to monitor all the systems, all the water, life yeah. support, everything, because those humans rely on everything that we send. Yeah. We, and that requires autonomy. Fascinating.
2: Yeah. That's a cool comparison to yeah. real
1: life. So and, and I was to say, there's one thing that
0: you had touched on, and we briefly started talking about it before mm-hmm. we even started. You had mentioned um, like multiple systems and like, or even like swarms of satellites. Mm -hmm. And I know that's another thing that like, not only just NASA, but like the scientific community and and makers and like universities have been putting small sats up, um, talk a little bit about how could you use small sats as a swarm? How does autonomy like play into that? And, and why would NASA be involved in this?
1: Right. So some scientists are looking at studying the sun and I am not an expert in heliophysics, but people are, and they- But I have friends. We have friends. (laughs) We know people. And they want to be able to study the magnetosphere, or the stuff that comes out of the sun and bombards the Earth all the time, or gets close to the Earth, and then we're protected. But they're looking at sending multiple spacecraft. You can't just send one Mm -hmm. and get the data from one to get the big picture of the, kind of the tide that the sun is sending out. There's really a shifting and dynamic tide. So they want data points across that whole tide. And so you think of a string or a string of satellites orbiting in this tide. And can we collect that data and um, do that autonomously? Now, the reason to push towards autonomy, though, is not that we have so many spacecraft because we know how to operate one you might say well yes. sure let's operate 100 the same way it does come down to cost though if we have dozens of people to operate one spacecraft what it's going to take to operate 100 yeah. and if we can have the same size team for that swarm of 100 spacecraft then we'll be able to c- accomplish our mission if we have to multiply that team by 100 for every spacecraft it's beyond it's, our it's budget crazy. we won't be able to do it yeah.
2: Well, let me interrupt because Brooklyn Knights would like to be reminded who we all are. So.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it is at about that time. So, if you are just joining us, um, you are watching NASA and Silicon Valley Live. This is a new conversational show uh, that we're trying out on twitch.tv/slash NASA. And we are chatting about self-driving robots, planes, and automobiles with Terry Fong and Diana Acosta. So, that's who we are. Yes. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs>
2: and I have a couple of comments to share. Monka S says, thank you for this information. People are appreciating this. Ooh. And PostVT says, this is actually the coolest Twitch stream. Freaking NASA <laughs> is talking to people on the internet. Like, what the hell? I love it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then here's a great question I want to ask from Sunny Deity. How would something like a self-driving car or rover deal in a catch-22 situation, like someone in danger from walking across the street on a red light or-
3: that's a that's a great question. Also, yeah. I mean, it's and it's probably the single most challenging thing about uh, making cars or robots autonomous is you know, how do you deal with the unusual situations, mm-hmm. the, especially the ones that are you know have lots of sort of life and death consequences. You know, yeah. you, know you pull up, there's a car you know blocking uh, everything that you can see, and all of a sudden you see this ball rolling to the street. Mm-hmm. You know, is that going to mean that there's a, a kid running after it right away? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you slam on the brakes or you just keep going because ah, that's a ball, run over it. Um, those are things that are really difficult to you know to deal with, and I think that's one of the reasons why we see self-driving car development still taking a lot longer than some people have thought. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are like, oh, yeah, but you know, next year we'll have self-driving cars everywhere. <laughs> um, and here in Silicon Valley, you actually see lots of self-driving cars, but you still also see safety drivers because mm-hmm. there are all these difficult situations. Well... Um, some of those situations are ones that, you know, you have to react right away. You know, the the ball and maybe a kid coming out on the street. Yeah. Other situations are still things that are unplanned. You know, the fact that you turn down a road and, oh my god, there's a tree in the middle of the road, what do I do? Do I drive on the mm-hmm. wrong side of mm-hmm. the road? Do I drive on the curb? Do I back right. up and go around? Um, for those kinds of s- situations, you know, some of the work that we've done here at NASA actually provides a good solution. And that is the idea of having somebody that you can phone home to. Um, at NASA we call it mission control. Um, I know mm-hmm. a number of self-driving car companies are looking at these sort of call centers, uh, like support centers, tech support, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. Right. So the car might get in a situation and it phones home. And then some human will just sort of pop into the car you know, via some 4G network data transfer and say, mm-hmm. hey, what's going on? Oh, I see, yeah, there's a tree here. Well, we'll tell you you should drive on the shoulder. And that's, that's an acceptable thing here and that's how you solve, you know, that kind of problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And imagine over time, even the system the system would still learn. Yes. In these mm-hmm. unique anomalies and these unique situations, over time it can probably continue to learn what like the correct way. So it doesn't sure. have to So ask next exactly. Time. So the next time you see a tree in the road you think, "Oh, you
3: know, last time it was okay to drive in the shoulder, so maybe mm-hmm. we should do that again." Or at least right. that will be, you know, the start of a possible solution around that problem.
0: Cool. So I, I think at this point we can do a little bit of what I've just made up in my head called video roulette, because I know both Diana and, <laughs> and Terry brought some, like, videos that we were going to talk on over. Um, so I'm going to have Bill and David over in the back. They're going to do video. And then whoever's video it is is going to talk about why they chose this one. So this is, this is, Who brought us this one? All right, so this, this, is, this is my
3: video. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a mission concept that, that we've had here at NASA Ames. Um, and it's not about actually the spacecraft here, it's about this interesting thing that's going to blow up, which is, well, expand I should say. Uh, this is called Superball. Um, it's a robot that doesn't look like any robot you've ever seen. It's basically a collection of rods and cables. And here we're showing how this, this system, which is, in technical terms, a dynamic tensegrity system, um, can land all the way from orbit and then roll around, um, basically by controlling the length of the sp- the cables, we can change the overall size and shape of the robot. And here's actually a tabletop model of of Superball. So you can see here, we have these rods here, and uh, the cables connect all the different you know uh endpoints here and by changing the lengths you know we can compress um and we can you know expand uh, in fact you see these you know sold as like you know baby or, know. or, or cat toys <laughs> um, like, yeah. but what we're trying to do is take these and make them from just being these things that you just you know handle yourself to be ones that are true robots and uh i don't know maybe bills yeah here's a, here's a picture of one of our our current prototypes this is super ball uh, number two, uh, here at NASA Ames, it's showing that it can change mm-hmm. its shape. It can squat all the way down, become very, very flat, awesome. um, which will allow it to sort of scoot under things. Um, it can change its shape to become larger. And you can imagine putting an instrument or maybe a rocket motor in the center, um, so mm-hmm. it can do all kinds of things. Here we've got um, you know, your, uh, your 3D printed sort of uh, little camera as, as, a, as an example of how you'd put an instrument inside of this thing. Um, and it's really cool. We've been doing all kinds of fun. Uh, this passes for work sometimes. Uh, you know, <laughs> drop, drop tests here, trying uh, to say, so. hey, can we throw a robot off of a top of a building and see how well it survives? Um, this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't do with a more traditional robot, but mm-hmm. allows us to really sort of explore this whole new space of what robots can do uh, for future missions.
2: Awesome. Cool. So. <laughs> Can I jump back in?
0: Go for it, Abby.
2: <laughs> All right. Now, I, I just want to mention that there are a couple comments about it's Jason Bourne and Matt Damon. I get the Matt
0: Damon thing. You should see <laughs> my older you? brother literally oh. looks like Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> we're honored
2: to have you with us. Nice. Now, there are a couple questions that people ask twice. So I want to get to those. So Surbas Meister really wants to know how is the research in robotics advancing in the field of asteroid mining? Do you know anything about that?
3: I will admit that uh, I know nothing about asteroid mining. Um, mm-hmm. We do um, have a lot of work here at NASA in terms of how do you make use of, of uh, resources on different planets. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest areas that we're interested in, uh, maybe they talked about this on the last episode, uh, was in terms of things that you can find on the moon. Um, we're very interested, for right. example, in going to the moon and, and locating pockets of underground water ice because we care mm-hmm. about the hydrogen that's there. Um, so that's a resource, and, and you know, if we identify a good place to go mine that, then we will go mine it. But it's probably not going to be like the mining we see here on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to have giant bulldozers and and you know, big giant trucks that are hauling away you know, tons and tons and tons of material. But we're still going to find ways of drilling down and excavating um, you mm-hmm. know, quantities of of say water ice, um, just so we can get out the cool thing we care about, which is like hydrogen.
2: Yeah, cool. Yeah, what
1: and of course,
3: that? and of course, we will do it all robotically.
1: And of course. why do you want the hydrogen?
3: <laughs> we want the hydrogen because we care about making fuel. We also care about mm-hmm. water just to yeah. keep people alive. I mean, water tends to be a, a good thing to have. <laughs> yep. Nice. Yep.
2: <laughs> uh, young Reefer asked a couple of times, moving on to spaceships far from Earth, we've built them to be autonomous, but something could happen. Something goes wrong and they're too far away from us to fix it. What, what can you do? Is well, there a solution? so can you f- uh,
3: it depends on what breaks, of course. Yeah. Um, NASA mm-hmm. is doing uh, a fair amount of testing these days on the space station of 3D printing. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're trying to look at how can you, you know, 3D print replacement parts if a part mm-hmm. breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in deep space and it's a, you know, it's a, a spacecraft that has humans on board um, and someone falls sick, another uh, thing we're trying to do is try to figure out, well, you know, what information does the chief medical officer in real life, so not just, you know, in, in science fiction, have to do. And um, it's interesting, if you think about this from a medical point of view, here yeah. on Earth, especially you know, in the United States, when you get sick, you go see a doctor, but it's not like you see just one person. That doctor is tied into this whole community. Mm-hmm. He's got all the support around him. I mean, labs and tests and uh, specialists, and you can get all these referrals. Um, and that's great in a connected world. Mm. Not so great if you're out on a spacecraft that's in deep space and there's nobody else there. Right. And yeah. if you wanna pick up the phone and call home, it's like, well, I'll call home and they'll get the call like five or six hours later. Right. So part of what we're trying to do also is figure out what sort of onboard knowledge, um, maybe it's a computer system that can help out, diagnose things or treat things that mm. would give support to say a chief medical officer onboard yeah. a spacecraft.
1: Fascinating. We're also, when it's non-human, when it's a spacecraft far, far away, we will put the spacecraft in safety mode. If it detects that there's something wrong, we do have system checks that are checking for the health of the vehicle. And it'll go into safe mode and wait For that call from humans Mm -hmm. um, to tell it what to do next and how we can continue on with the mission or do we have to abort then we're also looking at bringing some of that intelligence to the spacecraft itself so we can figure out what is wrong what are my capabilities Mm -hmm. and make that decision without waiting for the call from home yeah cool yeah and done a little bit of that on aircraft too I bet. Interesting. Lots of parallels between the different domains. mm -hmm.
0: One question, kind of, this is related to autonomy. Mm -hmm. In like, obviously, nowadays, you think people think about, you know, like the drones that go in swarms or self-driving cars. Um, And you know, like one of my my favorite subreddits is r slash like self-driving cars. And and everybody's like looking forward to this future where I can just call my car and just come in. (laughs) I'm just wondering of all the talk that happens with self-driving and autonomous systems what is your guys' opinion of that gap probably between Mm. what's really going to happen and then what's, like, more science fiction and hopeful thinking? Um, Mm. So kind of, like, and what are the stuff that, like, that you guys see or that excites you? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You want to take that one? No, you go first. (laughs) I don't know. You
0: want to go like hopeful or buzzkill?
1: You know, <laughs> you yeah, of? it could go either way. I'm really excited. I mean, this is a really exciting time, especially given the career that I've chosen. People see all these changes and the investments and the thousands of people who are working these really challenging problems. And I honestly don't know where it's going. I am eager to find out. I'm very fortunate and proud to be part of it. And... Um, It's going to be a fun, fun lifetime, (laughs) good time to be alive. So I'll I'll
3: tell you that I, I believe the future is full of robots and self-driving cars and self-flying planes, but I guarantee you that, that those, you know, robots and cars and planes will be doing things that we just don't imagine today. I mean, Mm -hmm. you roll the clock back even like 10, 15 years ago, you ask people, you know, why do you have a cell phone Mm -hmm. and people say, oh, it's to make phone calls and you ask the same thing to people today and they're like phone calls? I don't make phone calls. <laughs> you know, calls. I send text messages. Great. I watch mm. videos. And so yeah. the things you carry around, they're not phones. They're I mean they they can be used as phones, but they do different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we think, oh, I'm making a self-driving car because I want to be in a vehicle where I don't have to drive, yeah, it may do that, but I think it might do something else in the future. It, you know, maybe it's going to bring us groceries. Maybe it's going to, you know, <laughs> entertain us. You know, you get in the car and it's a place you go to instead of going to a movies, you get in your car and you just have fun for some reason. <laughs> um, but the point is that I, I think that, um, you know, we don't yet see what's going to happen with all these robots mm-hmm. and cars and planes in our lives, but I'm sure they're going to be there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Mm-hmm. Can I uh, divert us to yeah, some
0: let's more Yeah, let's go into the chat.
2: Quick one for Matt from Realtoring, where can I get that
0: cool NASA Silicon Valley shirt? Oh, <laughs> this, was a, this was a special order one, but um, we do have a little store over here, over at NASA Ames, over at the little visitor center. We do. And I've been talking to Kenny, the guy who runs it, so hopefully we'll get more copies of this shirt to come out. So, nice. uh, cool he, yeah, <laughs> this is where I dance that, that, that fancy line between a federal government entity and then I'm like endorsing stores, so.
2: Ah, well. <laughs> Maybe someday they'll visit us, and yeah, come and come and, and visit to one. go
0: come to NASA Ames at Silicon Valley. There's a little visitor center tent. There's a bunch of there's a little store that you can buy some stuff there,
2: yeah, exactly. Now, here's a question about hacking. How safe this is from? Sorry. Marcusallia. How safe are the self-driving cars and robots now from hacking? or are they at a really early stage of security levels?
3: Well, you know, I used to think my computer was safe from hacking until just a few weeks ago, and uh, <laughs> we we learned that every computing device in the world, uh, you know, is 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 uh, susceptible to things. Um, I, I think it's a real, uh, you know, good question uh, of how mm. do you you know have confidence that your your car, your robot, is not hackable. And I think it would go beyond that. I mean, anything that you hook up to the internet these days, you might worry about. You know, I look at all the people who have all these different devices that control your lights and thermostats or your ovens mm-hmm. um, remotely. And you think, yeah. well, are they safe? Is somebody going to be able to tap into them? Or all the people that now have all these, you know, these uh, home speakers that you can talk to and ask, you know, them to do things and not just, you know, tell, you know, jokes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and all of that is really then tied into the question of how do you make them secure? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's a, a really, you know, a very important area if, if we want to trust these systems and rely upon them. Um, Trust is something that I think, you know, as humans, you know, has to be earned when we, you know, work together as humans. You know, when I first meet somebody, I'm like, yeah, can I really trust them with my life? Maybe not so much. Um, (laughs) But over time, as you work with them and you understand, you know, what they can do and especially that they, you know, show you over and over again that they can be relied upon, then you trust them more. And, you know, I think to some extent, you know, robots and cars are going to have self-driving cars have to be in that sort of same category.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. and as we go forward with our space industry it is not going to be just government out there right. and just a few communication companies we're going to find that industry can really utilize space in ways that we cannot imagine right now yeah and as many people become spacefaring, they're going to have the capabilities to reach out to different spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Right now, we, we sort of rely on the fact that not many people are able to communicate with our spacecraft and our robots. And if they could even communicate <laughs> to them, that they wouldn't know how to be understandable and be able to give them something that would be... Um, it would hack the system right. mm-hmm. but a, as we go forward it's going to be something that we have to address because cybersecurity for all the spacefaring I- industry is going to be real and we'll have to follow suit other industries have done this before and we'll do the same
3: as not, not just space too obviously uh, um, you know aviation yeah uh, in general too as that becomes more connected right. um, you know all the, all the aircraft that are flown whether this are you know large transport aircraft mm-hmm. um, you know airline companies or you know general aviation pilots, You know, people want to rely on connected services just like we all do when we're just walking around, you know, our neighborhood or at home. And so they need networking. But that means is that networking safe? Is it secure? Is it reliable? Right. Um, That's that's a real big, big, uh, I think, challenge for everybody.
1: It's true. We're moving away from voice in our cockpits to data. And Mm -hmm. it's going to be a problem Mm -hmm. if we don't address it soon.
0: So for folks, are. if you are just joining us now, you are watching the NASA and Sil- you are watching NASA in Silicon Valley Live, a new conversational show that we are trying out on twitch.tv slash NASA. We're chatting about self driving robots, planes, and automobiles with Terry Fong and Diana Acosta. So um, as we're hitting into you know the last fifteen minutes, give or take, um, we're gonna jump into rapid fire questions. Yeah. Huh. I think we've got a ton yeah. of them, and we want to get as do. many questions from the from the chat as humanly possible. So yeah, let's do this. Okay. Let's, so the let's start going through. Before you Me. is to answer in one liners
2: or <laughs> <laughs> as or concisely not. <laughs> as you feel you can manage. Um, Reynar the Conqueror asking, Will AI ever power any kind of functionality on the International Space Station? Yes.
1: Is it yes. already?
2: Yeah. No.
1: Okay. In <laughs> research, yeah. yes. In research, research yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Do you want to take a little line to talk about that?
1: <laughs> uh, so, we have done research on the different systems for the ISS, being able um, specifically to monitor the life support systems, okay. water, um, the cleanliness of the water, and how well that's working. So, we have utilized AI in that Very for research good. purposes. Yeah congratulations okay
2: um let me find a good one this this is vast sims yeah so what do you think the next significant breakthrough in space exploration will be
3: oh boy the next uh, breakthrough in space exploration yeah Um, (laughs)
2: that's tough sending humans back to the moon Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah it'll be exciting yeah no less vast Robbie 1896 are we alone in the universe
1: Dun, dun, dun. Uh. I, I would say watch the podcast, or the the, the live f- video from last time with, oh, the, yeah, Jim, Green we'll, with Jim Green and Greg. And, and Greg those Schmitt. are the science experts, and they address that that question a little yeah, bit. Yeah, they talked right. about
0: that in detail. So yeah. you can check it out know, on YouTube.com slash NASA Ames, or I think it's actually on demand on Twitch.tv as well. But,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Now, seriously, I have several questions from people asking about their careers, their future careers, and what you guys mm-hmm. might advise. So, Montréal Chrisley, what the hell should I do to get an internship at NASA as a software engineer?
1: Ooh.
2: Or, more broadly, what can anybody do to work with you guys or with I, other teams? Here? Yeah,
3: that's, that um, I think it's really important for people to understand that that NASA is a place uh that's very open and very welcoming to people who want to, you know get experience at NASA, to do internships here, mm-hmm. uh, to work with NASA people. One way you can get involved is that NASA releases a fair amount of software open source. So you can actually download code from NASA. And yeah, um, cool. you know, we actually do take back uh, contributions in, in various projects. Mm-hmm. Um, another way is that uh, every single NASA center across the United States has a very um, you know, strong um, you know, program for summer internships. Yeah. I mean, here at NASA Ames, I think we typically get like eight, nine hundred students every summer. Yeah, um, which is a large number, and uh, you know there are lots of ways to get involved from the high school level all the way through grad uh, grad school level. Mm-hmm. So just you know
0: contact NASA centers and you know get an internship. Yeah. that's intern.nasa.gov. Nice. That's a, that's a that's a the one stop shop. Go in there to, to do all the applications and stuff. So. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Grelic asks, how long does it take for a program like Super Bowl to go from idea to actual prototype? How much does it cost? Also, Matt, how do you have your hair look so darn good? <laughs> maybe talk to us about Super Go Ball first.
3: <laughs> I want to hear about Matt's hair. I mean, um, no, I, but um, I do so, what my wife tells me to. <laughs> okay, um, Super Bowl is is something we've been working on for the past uh, maybe four years or so. Uh, but that's because we've been continually, you know, coming up with new designs for it. Um, the first concept, you know, from sort of like paper. Paper, is all right. <laughs> computer, from, from computer <laughs> sketch to right. actual hardware, just a, just a couple of months. Um, okay. But once you build it, there's a lot more t- um, to actually make it work um, in a really you know, mm-hmm. f- high-performance, reliable way. And that takes a lot of time in terms of controls yeah. and modeling and simulation and testing. Um, and the testing, of course, is the most fun part. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to build it.
2: <laughs> yeah, first of all. That's shorter than I might have thought to, to get started, at least. Yeah. Um, tell me if you guys know about the field of physics enough to answer this one. Vontar Wolf wanted to know how successful is a career in physics, like theoretical or astrophysics, assuming you have a graduate degree, mm-hmm. versus a career in aeronautics? So I feel, I, feel, I, feel,
3: I feel strangely qualified to answer that oh, because... Okay. Um, my my bachelor's degree is actually in aeronautics, ah. not robotics. Okay. Um, hmm. And my wife has a PhD in particle physics. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll tell you that um, of all the the fields in science, of course, now I'm going to get all these these strange comments from people who aren't physicists. I think physics hmm. is the most universal field. Mm-hmm. Um, just about every single physicist that I know um, can get a job in almost anything that they want, partially because they have more math background than anybody else, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything is driven by math. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, for people who are studying physics, um, you know, really the sky's the limit. Um, for me, you know, I was trained as uh, somebody in aeronautics, but then when I got into grad school, I got really interested in robots um, and and computers, and that sort of took me down a different path. And, uh, you know, aeronautics, too, um, is actually a good starting point because it's very interdisciplinary. You learn mm-hmm. about lots of mm-hmm. different things. You'd agree. You know, um, it's it's sort of a, a classic systems engineering discipline. And it's yeah. not just, oh, you're going to make planes. It's going to make planes, you're going to make spacecraft, you're going to mm-hmm. do math and physics and all kinds of stuff.
2: Yeah. Is that how you see it, too, Dana? I see it that way as well. Yeah. 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 That's nice. Interdisciplinary stuff. Here's a quick one. Shokarson is asking, uh, which programming languages do you use?
3: So, uh, in robotics, uh, we rely a lot on C, C, and Java. And uh, I would say for some of our systems, there's a lot of work that's, that's uh, been done in Python as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same for you. C, Python. All right.
2: Things I myself
0: have never learned. <laughs>
2: do you learn any
1: programming?
0: Oh, uh, I, I, I took I, my the intro to computer science? This is like in 1999, like first mm-hmm. year of college, and fiddled around making little like windows and programs and stuff. And I was it, the thing that struck me was like how similar it felt to like learning another language. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like learning like mm-hmm. Spanish and French. And then and like, again, I quickly realized like I could follow instructions, but mm-hmm. then it quickly went to the point where I'm like, I don't even have the vocabulary for Aww. this. And so, um, but yeah, then. <laughs> That was about. That was the end of my computer science career. So,
2: <laughs> that's okay, Matt. Uh, back to self-driving cars. Nick Gears asks, "What do you think the adoption rate for self-driving cars will be in the next decade, and will they ever reach the price point of manual cars?"
3: Wow. So, two-part question there. First yeah. part here's uh, adoption rate. I, adoption rate. I think it depends on where you live in the U.S. Mm. I think that um, if you're in an area where you have the good weather. Um, mm-hmm. like Silicon Valley um, it's a lot easier because you know there's a lot you know fewer things we have to deal with like thunderstorms and snow and stuff like that so yeah. I think it'll be easier to to have self-driving cars out in you know places like California Arizona and New Mexico first mm-hmm. um, will they get down to the price point of normal cars well I mean it depends uh, a lot of cars these days are just really becoming you know software platforms I mean you know all the Teslas out there these days, I mean, they get software upgrades, um, flip a switch, and they go from manual driving to self driving. So hmm. it's not like even so much a question of like an add on. I mean, the cars themselves are going to be ready to be self driving.
2: Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. That's interesting. Cool. Diana, quick. Yeah. Wordsworth asks, what is your favorite science fact or theory?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Um, I'm stumped. Okay. I don't That's know. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Ponder that and if something okay. comes to you, you
2: just jump in yeah. and let us know. Terry, JC Baby asks, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Oh. He didn't hesitate. Ooh, no he question. He did not hesitate. You guys?
0: <laughs> I, I know way more about Star Wars than any like than I should. But yeah, way more about Star. I know more about Star Wars and have read more stuff than necessarily Star Trek. So that's probably my world.
1: Yeah. Alright. <laughs> Firefly.
0: Firefly.
1: Firefly. <laughs> 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 Nicely done. A, yeah.
0: a, a shout out to our slash uh, prequel memes. They know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <That's>,
2: <laughs> Terry, Keeks is asking, who came up with the name Superball?
3: Superball. Uh, actually, that was a former researcher here at NASA Ames uh, with a really great name, Vitas Sunspiral. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you can find I'm working at a startup company in Emeryville these days.
2: All right. Let me see if we have... We had a question about robotic surgeons. Do you guys feel... You could handle that. Mellow Canuck was one asking, "Will robotic surgeons be used in space or on the moon? Is that something you hear about? Or are you involved?" In I, something like that? you know,
3: we we hear about those things, and I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, what's needed for like a chief medical officer or, yeah. or somebody who has to do medicine in space. Right. Um, and I I think that uh, that robot surgery is is certainly going to be sort of like one of the tools, and you know that person's yeah. toolbox okay because yeah. actually
2: do we have robotic surgery on earth right now uh Does we do that, yeah we, we do, do don't we, do. we? Yeah. yeah that sounded so far out to me but no,
3: no actually sure that exists yeah. <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's used very widely
1: interesting yeah the idea of surgery in space though makes me a little squeamish you, yeah you know, we have gravity here to make sure our blood goes in certain right. ways when we're have an injury but in space not so much mm-hmm. so Yep, well, yeah. it's a lot, a lot, it's a a lot more complicated temper- in space than it would be on a different continent. A lot of things are, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, nice. Yeah. We're going to get close to wrapping up. Yeah. What do you think? We got one more?
2: Oh, my goodness. Which one should we Let's get a be? really good one. There's kind of too many. <laughs> well, we didn't get anybody's favorite science fact or theory, which I'm a little disappointed about, but... Uh Um, What's your favorite factor? Yeah, (laughs) Oh, I don't know. What is your favorite space factor theory? I ask the questions around here. Uh, uh,
0: Or why don't people in the chat put down their favorite science. Yes. Oh, I'd love to see see that. that. And and if Terry or Diana think of one, then they'll have them add it to the chat towards the end.
2: Mm -hmm. This is a question that's quite different from the others in terms of uses for AI. Bearskin rug, how do you think AI could help us manage our natural resources? Is that an area you guys
1: know about? is that something ai is busy working on they are already using ai or big data techniques machine mm-hmm. learning to look at our natural resources especially that w- the big data that we're collecting from satellites of the different rainforests and such we're watching how those are changing not just in terms mm-hmm. of the green but also the temperature and other scientific data okay. so and the oceans as well so we are collecting a lot of information and processing it with AI, and then that informs the humans to make decisions that are can be regulatory in nature yeah. or uh, other. Yeah, neat. Mm-hmm. So AI, AI is kind of everywhere, isn't it?
0: Yeah, robots are everywhere. Robots are everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. robots <laughs> so, are everywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Algorithms, math, math. Yeah,
0: awesome. Excellent. So, nice. well, um, thank you so much, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, for folks, this has been NASA in Silicon Valley live. Huge thanks to Terry Fong and Diana Acosta for joining us today. Um, For folks listening or watching on demand, we are on all the major social media platforms under NASA Ames, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Uh, We even have a phone number, analog, where you can actually call in and leave comments and feedback. don't ask for a call back because that's not gonna happen. But we could add your comments into we could add your comments into the chat or into future episodes. That number is 650-604-1400. We will be back next week. This is Friday, February 2nd at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And that's where we're gonna be doing a special let's play space video games episode that we've been working on. So get ready for that. That is going to be a lot of fun. But if you haven't already, go ahead, click like, share, subscribe, whatever it is that you need to do on your screen or the podcast app so that you can check us out next week. Um, don't bother sending us tips or subs because this <laughs> this uh, Twitch show is brought to you by your taxpayer dollars. And for all of our international fans, uh <laughs> You're welcome. In um, <laughs> a shout out to the international science community that provides so much as well. But um, we are a NASA podcast. We are not the only NASA podcast. So a shout out to our friends who do This Week at NASA, Houston, we have a podcast, and Gravity Assist. But thank you so much, and we will see you guys next week.